great. Amen, right? Not only can you guys sing, but uh, you sing well about the greatness of God. Uh, so it is great to be in the Word this morning with you. And, and I just want to start off by reminding us, you know, um, when something is important to us, we work at remembering it, don't we? Guys, what is your wedding anniversary? All right, that's, that's a big one for our wives. Lisa actually engraved it on the inside of my ring, so I, I would not forget. Problem is, I can't get my ring off anymore, so it's like, oh, well, you know. <laughs> Gals, what about uh, the date of a close friend's birthday? I mean, how do you remember that, right? It's probably on your phone. You have an alert attached to it, or you may have it just memorized, and that's a great thing. Your social security number, it's an important thing today. You probably have it memorized. Um, guys, when is Super Bowl Sunday? What Sunday? Oh, this is underwhelming. <laughs> February 11th, come on. Four weeks away, okay. But of greatest importance for us as Christians is the importance of faith and adding to it. When we talk about the idea of having it all, we understand today you can't have it all in, the, in terms of the world's ideas. But God says, no, you can have it all when we define that as the life that God offers us. And it's a life of faith. And I love the fact that Peter, as he's getting close to the end of his life, comes back to this very thing. And he says in 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15, these words, and we'll put them up on the screen. It says, so I will always remind you of these things. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it is right to refresh your memory. As long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Listen to verse 15. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. And I think he got it right. Here's this man who comes into relationship with Jesus Christ. He's got his own agenda. He's got his own um, personal desires and thoughts. And, and God, Christ, molds him into this amazing spiritual leader. And at the end of his life, he says, this is the one thing I want to do. I want to help you remember these things. So why is that important to Peter? And why should it be important to us? Well, I think, first of all, it's because we tend to let other things take center stage. There's so many things in life that grab our attention, the tyranny of the urgent, things we have to take care of, and it's easy to let these things kind of float off to the periphery, off to the edge of the margins. But I also think it's because uh, on the top of Satan's to-do list is this one thing, which is to sidetrack Christians from remembering these things and pursuing them with their whole heart. That is on the top of his agenda. In fact, we find in 1 Timothy 4.1 these words, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith. And they'll follow deceiving spirits and things taught by... Isn't that amazing? Things taught by demons. There's this supernatural battle going on around us, and this world is infected and influenced by Satan and his demonic forces. And they will seek to dissuade you and I from our faith in the latter times. And he says, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared. I think that if Satan can get you and I to think that the Christian life is anything lesser than an all-out pursuit of faith in Jesus and adding maturity to our faith, then he wins. I think if Satan can get you and I to be intrigued with other interests, uh, to 
be engaged with uh, the pursuits of pleasure, uh, captivated by the world's wealth and its, and its things, or even if he can uh, incapacitate us with injuries of the mind or spirit, then he wins. And that's because you, are, you and I are God's A-game for bringing humanity back into connection with himself and defeating Satan. I think this is why Peter wrote earlier in 1 Peter chapter 5, these words, and we'll put them up on the screen again. He says, be alert and of a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's writing to Christians and he's saying Satan wants to devour, take chunks out of your life. He's not just talking about the world out there. Satan owns the world out there. Now, he's, he's roaming around looking for Christians that he can devour, and, and that's why the next verse says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Folks, Satan can be overcome. Satan can be disarmed. His power can be resisted, but it does take faith. It takes a growing faith. Ephesians 6, uh, verse 16 says, take up the shield of what? Faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Like using a bazooka aimed at a stink bug, active faith targets Satan's power. And this is why he seeks to undermine our faith, to dissuade us from our faith, to minimize our faith, and to cause us to not pursue it. And this is why Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, and if you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do, I know you do, would you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, where we read again in verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And listen to this, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, so that through these things he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. You can become more and more like God on a daily basis, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And then he says in verse 5, for this very reason, this is why I'm writing all of this stuff, so that you would make every effort to add to your faith. And notice he lists these things. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. And he says, if you possess these things, this is a great promise of God. If you possess these things in increasing measure, do you hear the sense of you got to keep pushing? you got to keep growing? you got to keep adding to your faith? You can't be static in this uh, relationship? In increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boom. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting they have been cleansed from their past sins. So notice verse 5 again. This is where I want to spend some time with you today. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. What I want to do today, as we get into this series, I think it's so important that we pause before we look at all seven of these qualities and ask ourselves, so what is this faith that Peter and God are talking about? What is this faith? So let's take a moment and invite the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and, and uh, help our understanding as we think more deeply about this. Would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, I, I am thrilled to be at this part of the scriptures today. It tells us so much. It tells us you have made us right before you. Our standing before you is, is pure and uh, without fault because of what Jesus has done. You've given us your righteousness in Christ, and thank you for that. You've given us in this relationship with Jesus everything that we need to live life and to have this awestruck devotion toward you that spills over into life. Father, we have come to know how great and good Jesus is. We sang about it this morning. And as we've come to trust in him, your promises also become relevant and true. We know that you will keep them, that Jesus gave them for a reason. And in experiencing these promises, you're going to make us more and more like yourself, sharing in your divine nature. Oh, that should shock us and humble us. Father, we pray today that your Holy Spirit would work within us to help us better grasp the greatness of this faith that so powerfully transforms us. God, we pray that we would be able to understand what that faith is and, and to keep on adding to it as we grow in our lives, that we would have it all from your perspective, this life that you have offered us. So God, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in 2 Peter, uh, God commands us to take our faith and to grow. That's a very clear command here. It's, it's something that he is very, very um, direct on. And, and yet, if we're going to add to our faith, I think we have to understand what our faith is. It's kind of like if you want to make an improvement to your car, you want to add a roof rack, or you're going to put a trailer hitch on the back, uh, or you're going to simply replace a radiator. If you go in to buy the part, you have to know certain things, right? You have to know what is the make and model of your car. Sometimes you have to know the color of the car. You definitely have to know the VIN number of your car. How many of you know that, by the way, this morning? Can you just bring it up? No, no, no. That thing's what, 16 digits long, you know? But you have to know those things if you're going to add to your vehicle. They have to match. And in the same way as we look at faith this morning, if we're going to add anything to it, we have to know what is this faith that we're supposed to have. Jesus says faith is the foundation of the Christian life. That's where we all have to begin. So what does God mean by faith? Well, we define it in many ways today. Some would define it as a trust in God. Others would say, well, it's really this feeling of hope about God and about life. Uh, it may be simply resting on what God has to say. That is where my faith rests. Some would say it's a mental awareness of who God is. And all of those things are starting points, but there's more to it than that. And that's what we want to look at today. To get us started on that, there's a one-minute video by one-minute apologists that help us understand where faith begins. Let's take a look. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. What does the Bible mean when it says to have faith? Well, I think we need to point out that there are two kinds of faith. There's belief that, and then there's belief in. Belief that is getting evidence that the Bible is true, that Jesus rose from the dead, that God exists. But all the belief that in the world won't get you saved according to Christian theology. In fact, James wrote in his little book called James, even the demons know that God exists, but they tremble. So intellectually, they know that God exists, but they don't trust in him. That's the second kind of faith. You see, trust in 
is not just intellectual, it's also volitional. Once you know that Jesus rose from the dead and is the Savior, then you put your trust in him. Most of the time when the Bible's talking about faith, it's talking about the second kind of faith, trust in. In fact, Bobby, I think the better word in today's culture is not faith. Literally in the Greek, it means trust. Once you know that Jesus is the Savior, you trust in him. I'll give you an example. You and I are both married. When I first met my wife, we're not married to one another, but when I first met my wife, I got evidence that she would be a good wife. But all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. So to go from belief that, which is just intellectual, to belief in, you have to take a step of trust in Christ. See, the first is a matter of the head, the second is the head and the heart. And God won't force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want him, you don't have to have him. He will separate himself from you in eternity. So that's the starting point, right? Believing in, not just believing information, but believing in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter takes that and he says, let's push it further. Let's take it and help you understand how to live that kind of faith, because faith is never something that just sits on a shelf and doesn't do anything. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, a passage we're all very familiar with this. He says, now faith is, and notice the words, confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we don't see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So God looks at that kind of faith and he applauds he says, yeah, that's, that's what I am looking for, that kind of faith. That is a solid confidence. It is a confident assurance. It is a firm persuasion, impervious, rock-solid, irreducible conviction that God is living and that he intervenes, intervenes in the affairs of men and women and that you and I will take action in response to that conviction. So saving faith brings us into relationship with Jesus Christ. We believe in him. But God takes that faith that saves us, and he says it must take action. You've got to do something with it. And we see that in the verses following Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, right, don't we? We see people taking action. Take a look at the screen. It says, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain. By faith, Enoch pleased God. By faith, Noah built an ark for his family. By faith, Abraham went to a place he would later receive as, an, as his inheritance. He didn't know where he was going. He was just following God. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob blessed each of Joseph's, Joseph's sons and worshipped. By faith, Joseph gave instructions uh, concerning the burial of his bones. Don't leave me here in Egypt. Take me with you. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. By faith, Moses refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, and he left Egypt, and he kept the Passover. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. By faith, the prostitute Rahab welcomed the spy. You could go on and on. And do you see the action? You see the faith, and the very next thing you see is the person with faith doing something with it. So it's an active faith. James was re referenced in our one-minute video. Let me read his comments. He says in chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? Now, James is actually going to the very heart of it. 
if your faith is simply that hope, it's simply that uh, thought of, of, of that God is there, that God is going to take care of me, but it never goes anywhere, it never does anything, he, he says, actually, it's, it's lacking in some sense. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So, we need to start at the right place. We need to take this idea of faith and open it up and examine it a little bit. And I want to do that this morning from the Old Testament. So, started in 2 Peter. Take your Bibles, open them back to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18. So you have 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. It's toward the first third of your Old Testament. And in this scripture, we have one of the most pristine and powerful demonstrations of this kind of active faith. And folks, it is seen at a time when most people didn't believe in God. So the public pressure was not to have this kind of faith. And the political powers that be were seeking to literally wipe out anyone who would declare this faith. In fact, all of the spiritual leaders were being pursued to be destroyed. So 1 Kings 18 is an amazing statement of faith. And what I want to do with you this morning is simply this. I'd like to read through the text and share some thoughts, four thoughts about Elijah's faith and how we should have a faith that reflects that. So we're going to start, uh, let's see, in verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. It was in the third year, uh, third year of drought. God had held back the rain in response to the sinfulness of Ahab and the nation. So there's this famine going on, and, and he says to Elijah, God says, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So God is responding to evil. He's withholding the rain, which produces productivity. And by the way, the God that they were worshiping at that time, Baal, guess what his specialty was? Thunder, lightning, and rain, right? And God just face to face, you know, it's the Apollo Creed. um, Gosh, what's, uh, you guys know? Rocky, thank you. Gosh, how could I forget Rocky? I play his tune song every morning when I'm stretching my knee, you know. I, I literally do. It's 30 seconds long. It's perfect. It's this Apollo Creed, Rocky kind of face-off. God in the face of Baal. So he says to him, hey, I'm going to send rain. Go talk to Ahab. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. says, now the famine was severe in Samaria, the capital. And Ahab called Obadiah. This guy is fascinating because he was over the household of Ahab, but he is a firm believer in, in God, in Yahweh. It says, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly from his youth. And when Jezebel, the queen, cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets, hid them in fifties in a cave, fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, hey, Ob, go through the land, let's find some water. Go through the land to all the springs of water, to all the valleys, perhaps We can find some grass still growing and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself. Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah is on the way, behold, Elijah meets him. And Obadiah recognized him. And he falls on his face before him and he says, Is that you, my lord, Elijah? And Elijah answered, Yeah, it's I. I want you to go tell your lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah says... How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? 
As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master is not sent to seek you. And when they would say he's not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you now where I know not. And so when I come and tell Elijah and he can't find you, he's going to kill me. You see, he had seen what God did with Elijah. He moved him around, kind of like a pawn on a chessboard. And he says, you're going to get me killed. Haven't anyone, hasn't anyone told you how I did this with the prophets and I hid them? And, and now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here and he's going to kill me. And Elijah, verse 15 says, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and he told him and Ahab went to meet Obed, or, uh, Elijah. Now look at verse 17. This is where it begins to get interesting. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? This is all your fault. And Elijah answers, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord, and you followed the Baals. You've exchanged gods. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah, which was the consort, or kind of like the, the wife of Baal, who eat at Jezebel's table. Get these 850 guys together. Let's meet at Mount Carmel. So Ahab sent all of the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together. So you have to picture, this is a huge, huge crowd. You've got the false prophets, and then you've got everybody else in Israel who can make it. And they're all standing there at Mount Carmel. And Elijah comes to the people, comes near to them, and he says... How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Listen to that. How long are you going to be this person who kind of wavers between what is true and, and who is the God of Israel and, and your belief in what works? How long are you going to do this? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And notice the response. Crickets. Nobody says anything. They know it's true. They just don't know what to say. And this is the crux of their theological, national, meteorological problems, is this fact that they're, they're limping, they're wavering, they are uncertain in their faith. And don't forget, this is the people of God. These are the people of God who can look back over their history and see examples replete of men and women who trusted God and by faith conquered. That's what Hebrews 11 is. And yet they're standing before Elijah, blowing in the wind like waves tossed on the sea, uncertain of what to do. So Elijah decides on a challenge. He's gone to Ahab to say, rain is coming. And then at the end of the story, rain does come. But in the middle of it, he has this challenge and this question he asks, who will you choose? And I think this is the same question for us today in our world. Who will we choose to follow? What will we believe? What is truth? There are plenty of gods, small g, to go around today, plenty. But there is only one true living God. So he confronts Baal directly, and he creates this challenge. Listen to it in verse 22. Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. I think he's talking about right here in front of you, because he knew about the other prophets in caves, but he says, I'm the one of, of God right here. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. You can see them there. There's another 400 with Asherah. Let two bulls be given to us. 
And let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. Let's create a sacrifice to uh, your God. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. Now, remember, what is Baal the God of? Lightning. It's like, yeah, that's a no-brainer. Sure, we'll do that. The people answered, it is well spoken. That's a great idea. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal. Listen to this, from morning until noon, three hours of a prayer meeting. And then it gets intense, oh Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, I'm sure Elijah loved this moment, right? He mocks them. And he says, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, he is deep in thought and just doesn't even hear you. Or he is relieving himself. He's in the bathroom. He's occupied. And the Hebrew literally says that. (laughs) Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and must be awakened. Oh, I think he loved that part of this. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation or sacrifice. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Six hours of this. And notice what the author says here. Again, no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Don't don't miss the stark contrast here. This is like rabid NFL fans at a playoff game, right? The score is tied, one minute left, and their team is in the red zone, and they're screaming and dancing and shouting and gesturing. Can you picture it? It's happening this afternoon with all the playoff games, and they're so excited. He's got to show up. He's got to do something for us. But in this case, there's no team on the field, God is absent from the stadium. They're God. AOL, non-existent. So Elijah mocks them in, in their disbelief. And twice Baal's silence is mentioned in the passage. So this is the outcome, God says, of mistaken faith, of misplaced faith. But notice, here's the four things about Elijah I want you to notice, of true active faith. Number one, true biblical faith, true active faith builds on the past work and word of God. So as we come here this morning in the tradition of Christianity and we look at those who have gone before us and we think about those in Scripture who have inspired us, this is what Elijah does. Look at verse 30. Elijah says to all the people, and I love this, come on close, family hug. Come on, get close. Let's talk. And all the people came near him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. He could have built a brand new altar. In fact, it would have made a lot of sense. This is a new moment in God's work. But he takes the altar that has been broken down there on that mountain, and he puts it back together. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. Isn't that fascinating? And if you're sitting here going, not really. It should be, because of what he's doing. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. So... He is building, rebuilding this altar that represents the faith of a united 
Jewish nation, all 12 tribes, right? He's, he wants to include them all. It represents their identity before God. They're a chosen people. It represents the name of the Lord. It represents a place of worship, a place to sacrifice and be reconnected with God. And he rebuilds this ancient altar. And he says to you and I today, if you want to strengthen your faith, you do well to go to the past, the lives of other Christians who have gone before you. Hebrews 11, look around in our church, those who have passed away recently, the faith that they exhibited in God. We look at that and we say, that's what I need to reconnect to, to strengthen my own faith. I have to go back to what God has done and watch in my life to see him do it again. So true active faith is oftentimes seen in others, and it draws us closer to God. And it works in ways that brings attention to God and what he can do. So that's what Elijah is doing here. He's rebuilding this altar. But secondly, true biblical faith expects great things of God. Folks, this is, this is the part where God applied this to my heart this week. This is where I had to step back and say, do I really do this? And the answer is, I, I struggle to do this part of it, and maybe you will as well. But notice what he does. He makes a trench around the altar. He didn't normally do that, but he digs around the altar this, this trench that would contain two seas of water. That's 17 liters. Okay, so that's a fair amount of water. It could contain that amount. And he puts the wood in order, and he cuts the bull in pieces, and he lays it on the wood. And then he says... Fill four jars with water. These are the big jugs that a woman would bring from the well for the day's supply of water. So it's a fair amount of water. Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And they do it. And everybody's going, this is weird. You ever try to burn wet wood? It doesn't work. So they pour it on there and he goes, do it again. Really? Okay. So they pour it on again. And then he says, ah, let's do it again. And they pour it on a third time. Verse 35, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. What is Elijah doing? I think his, his uh, prayer in God, first of all, is an act of firm persuasion, solid confidence, confident assurance that God is living and intervenes in the affairs of men and responds to the prayers of faith of his people. And, and what he's doing essentially is he's trying to make it harder for God to answer his prayer. Have you ever done that? God, this is a tough month financially. We're going to make it harder for you to answer our need and, and we're going to give away something that you need. So God, I'm going to make it harder for you to answer my request. I'm going to make it more difficult for you to fulfill what I need. I'm going to raise the bar. I'm going to increase the challenge. I'm going to double the odds that you can't answer this prayer. <laughs> he was so confident of God's ability and attentiveness and desire to honor his name that he ups the odds. And I love this about Elijah. It's something I struggle doing, purposefully making my life either harder, reducing what I need or what I have for what I need, so reducing my resources so God has to intervene in a greater way or asking something greater of God than I would have asked to begin with. I think those are the two things that he's kind of modeling for us. God, I'm going to ask a great thing for you. You can send fire down, but now you've got to consume wet wood and, and all the rest of this. 
I love the story, and some of you are familiar with it. It's been an example to me over the years of George Mueller. You ever hear of George Mueller? Lived in England during the 1800s. It's interesting, uh, you know, I think of George as kind of this um, really holy guy. He's the guy that's the pinnacle of faith. Listen to how he started. His dad was quite wealthy. He grew up as a privileged snot. He truly was. He was an arrogant son of a lawyer. He routinely drank, gambled, and failed to pay his bills. George Mueller, right? One night, for whatever reason, he went to a prayer meeting. I can't imagine a guy like that doing that, but God moved him to a prayer meeting. He got a hold of his heart, and George changed. He believed in the Christ. And from that moment on, he said, God, my wife Mary and I, we just want to follow you. And so as a leader, he, a Christian leader, pastor, he refused a salary. He said, whatever people give me. He started orphanages uh, and, and fed hundreds and hundreds, thousands of orphans. Um, but what's interesting to me is his intent was to prove the greatness of God. And he would never ask anyone for anything. You, you know how sometimes in our prayers... We know that we want to communicate something to somebody who is, you know, to the group that we're praying with, but we don't want to just make an ask. So he said, dear God, uh, this is a real need in my life, and, you know, here's what I need you to do. And we're letting all of them know, right, hoping that there will be a response maybe from humanity. George never did that. And God entrusted to him at that time half a million dollars an income that he turned around and gave back to God. At the end of his life, he died with $850, $850 in value to his name. He only had 350 in cash. His furnishing books and clothes was worth 500 He just gave it all back to God. And the, the thing is, he, he says at the end of his life, this comes from uh, the George Mueller website, every child of God is not called by God to establish schools and orphan houses and to trust in the Lord for means for them. Not every one of us is, is commanded by God to do that, but here's what he does say. Yet there is no reason why you may not experience far more abundantly than we do now. His willingness to answer the active faith and prayers of his children is great. I like that. So when we pray today, oftentimes we're trying to give God a hand in answering our prayers so that instead of throwing water onto the sacrifice in our prayer and faith to God, you know what we throw on? gasoline. And then just before we pray, we toss the match. God, send fire from heaven. There you go. That was easy, right, God? We tend to do that as Christians, but not Elijah. His active faith sought to highlight the greatness of God, and he asked for more from God. Third, true biblical faith serves the greater will of God, not ours. True biblical faith looks for God's will and God's glory. Notice verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, 3 o'clock, Elijah the prophet came near and said, and listen to his prayer, O Lord, Master, you're the God in complete charge, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You're the covenant-keeping God. I know that. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. You're present. You interact in the affairs of mankind. And that I am your servant. I'm here to do your will. It's not what I want. It's what you want. You want people drawn back to you. And that I have done these things at your word. God, as I've listened to what you want as a follower of Yahweh, as a follower of Christ, 
What is it you've asked me to do? Great, I am going to go and do that. And he says, O Lord, answer me, O Lord, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. That is powerful, active faith. Because it simply does this. It says, God, here's your rightful place in creation. You're the master, covenant-keeping God, creator of all things. It gives us a proper place in that kingdom as God's servants. We're there for God's purposes, for God's will. And it gives God's people reasons to know God is God and to return to him. So Elijah's faith, this active faith, served the will of God, got God's people to kickstart their faith, get off their duffs and come back to God off their fences. And fourthly, true biblical faith witnesses the power of God in response. Look at verse 38. What's the first word of verse 38? Then. Then. Not before. Not much later. But then. The fire of God fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Can you imagine that moment? You ever thrown fire onto a barbecue, you know, a coal barbecue in your backyard, and then thrown the match? What happens? Yeah, you lose your eyebrows if you're too close. It's like, oh, woof! Fire falls from heaven. Baal is inadequately absent. But in this case, the fire falls, and it licks up everything in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. They seized them, and he brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there, removing evil from the land. So there's finally this conviction. And it took an act of God for these people to respond to him. But when they finally decided that, that uh, Yahweh is who he says, he's the Lord and master of all things, including themselves, they return to faith. As our worship team comes up to lead us in closing worship, let me conclude with a couple of thoughts. Because we can look at a passage like this and we can say, that is powerful act of faith. How do I do that? As I leave here, how am I going to have active faith in my world? Let me give you a couple of things. I think you and I can grow our faith into this kind of Elijah faith if we will simply do two things. Number one, get to know the true and living God from his word. Get to know God deeper, more richly, more fully in every sense. Read the word of God, memorize it, reflect on it, and ask yourselves, God, what are you teaching me about you? Spend time getting to know God. That's number one. But number two, once you understand that, act passionately and prayerfully on what you've learned about him. Ask more of God than you would ask of him. Can I ask you to do that this week? When you have something in your life, ask more of him than you think he could ever do. And secondly, this week, look at your life and say, God, can I do with less so that you can give me more to meet my need? So it's not me doing it, it's you doing it. I love what James says, and we'll wrap up with this. James 5, 16 says, The prayer of a righteous person, we've been declared righteous, it's in 2 Peter 1, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. 
as it is working. Notice that? It has power as it is working. He goes on to say, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That's a relief. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Folks, it's that simple. Active faith that we are going to build on says, God, I want to know more about you. You are the living God who intervenes in the affairs of men. And secondly, God, I want to passionately, intentionally, prayerfully ask more of you and give more of me so that when a need is met, it's God. Someone said, your faith in mine is never static or stationary. It's either firing up or fading down. What direction is your faith heading this morning? Let's stand and sing together.